0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Steve Buse, the investigative journalist who broke the story in The Spectator about Sewergate. will have an update. All the premiers meet in Ontario yesterday, courtesy of Doug Ford. Was there a group hug afterwards? And the Prime Minister and other world leaders in London... To discuss NATO, it's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Steve Buse, a Hamilton spectator, investigative reporter uh, there, and another great reason why we need to continually support local media and the great work that uh, uh, investigative reporters do uh, not only for our industry, but in our local communities. And we've all heard of Sewergate and what happened with uh, billions of leaders pouring into uh, Coote's paradise and going relatively unchecked for four and a half years uh, before a gate is closed. Then, once the final uh, gate is closed, or once the gate is closed, rather, uh, the council then votes to, uh, to keep the whole thing under wraps uh, after listening to legal advice. To talk more about this, the guy that broke the story from your Hamilton Spectator, Steve Bust, he is with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Scott Thompson, we meet again. We do. I was hoping you'd come in, but I'm sure we'll meet and dance later in life. (laughs) All right. So first of all, give us the latest because there's been another addition to the story with the storm that happened on Sunday and another release of uh, material into uh, the harbor. Do you want to touch on that?
1: Oh, actually, I can't. I've actually been off the last two days, so uh, I'm not the best person uh, to talk about that issue. So sorry about that.
0: Not a problem, but from what we understand, as a result of this process, uh, now the public is being made aware of when this sort of thing happens, and obviously once the system gets to its peak, uh, that has to happen, and and I guess some of the, uh, the sewage needs to go into... Uh, the harbor, seventy-eight million liters this time of partially treated wastewater. How did you first find out about this situation in, uh, involving this spill four and a half years ago? How did you? How did this come to your attention?
1: Oh, it's uh, beautiful. It's the uh, the dream of every investigative reporter. <laughs> it was it was literally a an anonymous brown paper envelope that was dropped on my desk and. Uh, no indication for, you know, where it came from. And when I opened it up, all that was inside were two uh, committee reports, one from January of this year, one from September. Um, I had a sense it was, you know, pretty urgent because the word confidential was, uh, um, you know, stamped across every single page. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so, you know, then my job becomes, you know, to make sure that you know this is a real document it's not some sort of elaborate forgery and uh you know it seemed pretty clear right off the bat that these weren't forgeries and uh obviously they weren't <laughs> and you know like i said it was it's a dream come true for an investigative reporter
0: it's funny i you know i've had it happen a couple of times here where people just all of a sudden drop brown manila envelopes up to your desk it's it's a very bizarre feeling when did you know you were on to something
1: oh you know it took about 30 seconds of reading to, to figure it out <laughs> i mean you know right in the the report uh, that I looked the first report I looked at was the one from January, and you know right up high uh, you know you see twenty four billion and you know I don't really care what you're talking about, whether it's liters of sewage or dollars i mean twenty four billion is one of those numbers that um, you know it's so incomprehensible that yeah. that uh, and that's what makes it so interesting to people, it's it's almost beyond comprehension.
0: And I, I shouldn't be laughing here, but it this is all very bizarre. What was running through your head as you're stumbling on this?
1: You know, I, the the sort of the three things that you touched on, which is um, you know, twenty four billion is just an astronomical amount of potential damage to our waterways. The fact that it went on for four and a half years. And then, of course, the the you know the thing that hits you right away is this has basically been kept from the public's attention for you know a good year, anyways. And you know uh, it should be noted that council actually had some pretty good ideas for more than a year that it was a massive volume. I mean, there were earlier reports referenced in the ones that came to me of you know numbers in the 15 to 16 billion range. So they they knew that there was this massive problem
0: and it had been you know their knowledge for probably over a year anyways do you know how they found out about it how did they stumble on this
1: (laughs) so uh, you know some people might say only in Hamilton. you know they discovered that the gate had been partially open only because there had been a second malfunction at the same overflow tank Hmm. and it was in in the course of investigating the You know, what they thought was the first malfunction, which was in effect the second malfunction, that's when they had the, you know, the massive uh oh moment when they noticed that this gate had been left open for four and a half years. Partially open, I should
0: say. What about people downstream for four and a half years? Did that come to anyone's attention?
1: No, and so, you know, that's the sort of, uh, you know, that's the great unknown right now is, uh, you know, what sort of environmental damage has been caused by this ongoing, um, you know, this ongoing problem. lasting ongoing problem, by the way. Um, And it should be pointed out that, um, you know, as, as goofy as it sounds, uh, these overflow tanks. There, there are occasions when they when they can actually have a spill, like or or a, or a release. You know, if it gets if it's if if it's a rain event that it's so large that even that can't be contained by this massive tank, then you know that's sort of the absolute last safety valve um, is for you know material to then go into the creek. But nobody intended for this to be a constant, ongoing issue.
0: Right. So when it, when it gets to an overflow scenario, these gates open up, which is what obviously happened during the storm this weekend, it lets a certain amount out until it gets to a manageable scenario. This not the case, though, with what you're talking
1: about. No, this, you know, it, it certainly wasn't intended for it to be partially open for four and a half years. And, of course, you know, as you can see, people are rightly angry about this, and yeah. they're wondering, you know, how... How can your system possibly fail to a point where nobody noticed it for four and a half years? And I, I'm sure that's part of the ministry's investigation.
0: Was it, do we know if it was complaints by the public that started the city to probe this sort of thing?
1: Well, no, as I said, they, they there was a, a this other malfunction. Another
0: malfunction yeah, that, that they that
1: noticed. caused a large uh, sort of leak. And it was, as I said, in the, the, so that one, they sort of, They sort of alerted the public to that one, um, not with any indication of the volume of that. Um, And so the city has sort of been kind of relying on that as, well, you know, we did tell you that there was an issue, um, and we did warn you to stay away from the water, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, sort of in the background was this, oh, yeah, there was also this other malfunction that we discovered that was four and a half years in the making.
0: So, from this point, does it look like uh, just the lack of a backup system to check on something that was left open? Does it appear to be negligence? Do we have any of those answers as yet?
1: No, I don't think so, and I think that's uh, definitely part of the Ministry of the Environment's investigation is is to uh, to look at, you know, was was this some sort of mechanical malfunction? If it was, you know, what processes are in place to... Uh, you know, to fix those malfunctions. Um, I know that the ministry has conducted interviews of uh, staff, contractors, and former staff. And so, you know, I'm sure that'll all come out, you know, once the ministry decides what actions it wants to take or not take with the city.
0: When did the province find out about this? So uh, the
1: province... Uh, The province knew about the second malfunction, uh, as far as I know, back in July of 2018. Um, I'm not entirely clear when they were made aware of the sort of ongoing problem. Um, But I'm assuming it was somewhere in that range, because uh, in early August, the ministry had issued an order against the city that, that seemed to suggest they needed to immediately begin the process of hiring a consultant and figuring out, you know, what sort of environmental damage had
0: been caused. Did the province do its due diligence here and responsibility? Many are questioning whether the province, why the province didn't step in here ahead of time.
1: Yeah, and I don't really know enough about how, you know, how they conduct their business. I don't know whether it's, uh, you know, an issue of, you know, they rely on the city to provide them with, the information of their own monitoring. Um, you know, it's easy to say, and, and I'm not defending anyone here, but it's easy to say, you know, they should be the ones going around and checking, but you can imagine the mammoth nature of, yeah. of that job. Uh, apparently
0: there's like 100, and we, we were talking to the city, there's apparently like 150 of these gates or systems like this that, that uh, are in the system.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, is it, you know at some point you, you, you have to rely on sort of, you know, self-monitoring, I guess. And in this, the world we live in now where, you know, everyone's screaming for budget cuts and tax cuts and, you know, reduction of, of government services, um, you know, this is the result. <laughs> this is what you end up with. You end up with, you know, essentially systems that are, are self-checking and self-reporting.
0: Uh, considering what council has been through in the last little while you know I remember a a few years ago it was you know there were lots of chance to to throw them all out uh, anybody but the incumbent and then that seemed to die down a bit we got a few new faces uh, with the last election and such, um, what is this doing to public perception of council again, when you think of, you know, the information that was withheld regarding uh, Red Hill? Now, council will say, we didn't know about that. That was something else. But still, at the end of the day, it's the public that's left out of uh, of the information process here. How, what's the buzz in the city about this council?
1: Well, you you know I, I've been around Hamilton for a, a long time. I've been at this the spectator for almost 33 years, I know you've been around for a long time. I, I have never seen the level of anger and um, mistrust and just general despair um, like I'm seeing with this issue. There's something about this issue, as I you know wrote in in uh, Monday's paper. Um, there's something about this one that seems to be the straw that's broken the camel's back. Uh, this seems to be the one that is causing people to just throw up their arms in, in total despair. I, we've never published as many letters to the editor on a single issue as we have with this one. I mean, we're publishing mm. full pages of letters to the editor devoted just to this topic. Um, I, I've never seen this level of anger before. Whether that will translate into something down the road uh you know who knows but uh boy uh, there is a lot of uh fury in the city right now
0: is it the event itself or the fact it was covered up
1: you know i, I think with most actions like this you know it, it's 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 the part b it's the it's the not coming clean when you had the chance you know i, th- I think people can understand that processes break down um, there's no suggestion here that anything that happened was the result of any sort of malicious behavior mm-hmm. or, or, to this point, even negligence. You know, it may have just been a, a horrible, horrible accident. But, you know, not coming forward to then tell people about it, I think, is the part that is, that is really angering people. Who, who are also, of course, realizing that at the end of the day, they're the ones that end up paying for this, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's not like it's going to come out of, uh, you know, uh, bureaucrats' pockets or counselors' pockets directly. It's, it's coming out of the pockets of all of the taxpayers.
0: What about the uh, excuse they're using that they uh, obtained legal advice and the damage was done? So rather than open open this up to litigation, which is obviously where we are now anyway, uh, they decided to honor that legal advice and not say anything. Does that fly? Because at the end, you're saving Hamiltonians' money, you know, by doing that. Are you?
1: <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't seem to be flying with a lot of people. And you know, at the end of the day, I think people are saying. Whether you, whether you tell us it's 24 billion liters, or you don't tell us it's 24 billion liters, whether you tell us it was four and a half years or don't tell us it was four and a half years, none of that changes the facts. You know, either that happened or it didn't happen. And owning up to it and admitting it and, and telling people that this is what happened, I, I don't think I, I can understand how that increases your liability to anything. You're simply stating facts. And, you know, other, other things may determine your liability, but stepping forward with facts, I'm not sure how that makes you liable for anything.
0: It'll be interesting to see how where they are now changes uh, the dynamic if they had done this uh, initially, <laughs> how, if there's more legal action as a result as opposed to prior. What about the apology? Does that fly?
1: I, I think... You know this is also rankling people in the city. Um, you know, in general, you know people want apologies they 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 sort of hope that people will say sorry if something went wrong. But even this is rankling people because you know first of all, there was you know a fair amount of delay um, and then it took you know a four plus hour in camera meeting. To you know, step forward at 3:20 a.m. and basically sort of, you know, to people I think it sort of almost grudgingly seemed like they you know were kind of, you know, kind of the kid in class who got caught doing something bad and sort of you know say say you're sorry to mm-hmm. your you know to your classmate. Okay, I'm sorry. You mm-hmm. know, it it had that sort of ring to it that that it 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 was a little bit for some people too little too late and. And maybe not with the sincerity, you know, it's hard to judge people's sincerity, but, um, you you know, it it almost seemed to people in the city that if you have to drag it out of them, what's the point?
0: Yeah, really. Uh, What about those? How has this divided council Uh, when, you know, when they vote to keep something like this under wraps? There's some that may not have. Has this divided council? uh, How do they justify this within?
1: I, you know, I, I really don't know, and and you know, I'm I'm not at City Hall enough to to sort of you know measure the tenor of of you know debates and and emotions and things like that. I, I can only imagine that it must have been a fairly tense um, few in camera sessions, both you know before the public knew about this, and now since it's come out, um, you know, I, I'm sure those are some pretty tense meetings. Um, uh you know whether you know whether that causes any sort of long-term divisions I don't know um because again I you know you don't know what's going on around that table when the doors are closed uh,
0: even even if they vote uh to to keep all of even if the majority of council votes to keep all of this private and under wraps and there's those that don't, what sort of recourse do those councillors that don't agree with all of this? I mean, theoretically, they had a vote. They've got to keep their, their mouth shut. Should they have said something, or is that how we got to you, getting your brown vanilla, manila envelope?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I mean, I can honestly and truly say with, you know, um, with all honesty that I don't know how that envelope ended up on my desk. And to be quite honest with you, I don't really want to know. I mean, from, yeah. a, from a legal standpoint, you know, thinking selfishly here, from a legal standpoint for me, it's far better for me that I don't know the yeah. identity of the person. Mm. Um, you know, that I don't have to worry about, you know, someday ending up on a witness stand and, you know, having to decide whether I'm going to uh, reveal the identity of a source. In this case, you know, it was done completely anonymously. I don't know who the source is, and, you know... I don't have to spend a lot of time worrying about it. To be are you honest. surprised
0: that some people want to know who this is? It sounds like Trump. wanting to know a whistleblower. I mean, is it irrelevant now? I mean, who cares?
1: Uh, yeah. you know, I, I you know, you, you want to talk about things that are rankling the public. I mean, you know, that's another one that ranks high up there for people. It's, you know, this idea that you know I think people are a little bit concerned that you know some counselors seem more. Uh, disturbed about figuring out how it was, you know, leaked or who leaked it rather than what leaked and how it leaked. Um, And so, you know, I think people are, you know, when when it looks like you're going to go after the whistleblower, you know, there's just as many, if not many more or 10 times more people saying, you know, the whistleblower deserves a medal. Mm. uh, Otherwise, we'd still be in the dark about this.
0: Steve Bust has been with us, investigative journalist uh, with the Hamilton Spectator and person who broke the story on the sewage spilling into Coots. Steve, thanks so much for the time, as always. Great work. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, quite a festive event in Ontario, I guess Mississauga, the place where uh, Doug Ford pulled all the premiers, invited all the premiers to come together and. And chat about uh, their common uh, goals as opposed to their differences and uh, trying to create some divisiveness. Uh, it's the new Doug Ford, they say. Let's bring in Christo Abeli, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. And he is with us now. Christo, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So uh, the uh, the tone of this meeting, from what I understand, was to try to focus on the positive and the similarities as opposed to the differences. Is this a good approach?
2: I mean, you know, I, I think it makes sense politically for Ford. You know, he has had a bit of a rough time as premier in his first year and a bit. Um, his approval ratings are not where you'd like to be this soon into a term. And I think part of the reasons is this perception that he's you know, he, he doesn't work with the other side, that he's too abrasive. And for him, politically, internally, but I suspect for most of the premiers, it looks good that they're cooperating. And if you do believe we are in a time where, you know, uh, regional disputes are growing again, the block has sort of resurged in, um, in Quebec and in the West, you have, um, you know, growing, uh, if not separatist tendencies, then certainly feelings of alienation, then maybe it is a good time for the premiers to find some sort of common ground uh, that they can work together on. It's probably not a bad thing.
0: Uh, Over and above uh, Doug Ford, I guess, calling this and bringing them all together, the rest of them did come, were there. Why do they have the feeling now that divisiveness is getting the upper hand? Are they hearing from their constituents, do you think, on this?
2: Well, I think there's a few things. I think the the nature of the, the, the political divisions are growing. Again, whether it's there is the rise of the bloc in Quebec, which does indicate that you know maybe Quebec feels in some ways it's distinct from the rest of Canada whether it's on the nikab issue or whether it's on their they have a more strident pro pro or you know pro uh, uh you know anti-pipeline position or whether it's on the other hand you have almost the entirety of say Saskatchewan and Alberta and much of Manitoba outside of Winnipeg voting conservative and yet you know we have we don't have a conservative government i think that's created a lot of these tensions and so i think the political reality is that You know, in part because of our first-past-the-post system, it tends to exaggerate regional um, parties. So in the Maritimes, at the the federal level, you have a lot of liberal votes, even though many people voted conservative. And, of course, out West, you have mostly conservative seats, even though many people voted NDP and liberal. And so it creates this sort of tension. And so I think the premiers understand this, that they need to kind of do more – to, uh, to reflect the reality that even within the most politically unified provinces, in terms of how the seats are structured, there's significant political disagreement uh, that needs to be reckoned with.
0: So is this all good form nature talk, or is this a tipping point? What was accomplished yesterday?
2: I mean, you know, there was some discussion about nuclear packs, including Ontario, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick. I think that, you know, there's been discussions about the need for uh, you know, uh, more help from the federal government uh, for all of the provinces for different in, for different reasons in different ways. But they all feel that they need that, whether it's the West, maybe they feel they need help um, because of the, the struggles with the oil and gas. Of course, the Maritimes might feel it needs help because it has, you know, lower levels of, 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 of economic prosperity relative to the rest of the country. But on the whole, I think that that was the, the, the main focus was trying to find uh, a kind of a concerted voice because if they do want to approach the federal government on any particular issue, the provinces often you know have an advantage when they can speak as a unified block or at least as a large block. because even Ontario, say going one- on- one with the federal government is a bit tricky, but if they can find you know partners, it makes it a bit easier for them to make their case.
0: It's fascinating because it's different this time uh, as compared to, say, when Quebec was talking separation way back when. And again, I'm not trying to fuel separation rumors. I don't think that's going to happen. All we have to do is look at Brexit to figure out where that goes. But it seems it's just the individual provinces that are, you know, bickering. Like the other day, it was Manitoba and Quebec. You know, it's B.C. and Alberta. I mean, it's not just left, right. It's not just east, west. It's just not Quebec and the rest of the country. It seems to be a little... uh, A little deeper than that. With these sort of meetings, you know, they say face-to-face communication is best. Does this help to bridge these gaps, even though we are different? I mean, obviously, from east to west, we're a very different country.
2: Well, yeah, I think you make a good point in noting that it's not strictly, you know, uh, left versus right. But, you know, like, for instance, there's there's disagreements between Quebec and, say, Ontario, which, which, you know, all parties agreed to condemn Bill 21, uh, the Conservatives, Liberals, and NDP, and Green, uh, you know, individual MP sort of all agreed to condemn that, and then in addition, you do have Manitoba sort of trying to recruit many of the people affected by Bill 21 to come work as professionals, and then of course you have the pipeline issue, which is popular in places like Saskatchewan and 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 Alberta, especially, but has lower popularity in in parts of BC and in much of Quebec, and I think all of these issues are fairly important. Now, can a face to face meeting help? Certainly. You can certainly try to find commonalities on other issues and maybe try to put these ones aside, or maybe try to find more commonality on the divisive issues in particular. But on the whole, it is tricky because if there are fundamental disagreements of a social or economic or environmental nature, then sometimes a face-to-face meeting might you know, cause a temporary reprieve, but it might not solve the underlying issues. And the underlying issues is that some of the province has, uh, provinces have different political perspectives and therefore the leaders of each of those provinces have different political interests so you can say to legault in quebec that look what you're doing uh, in our opinion violates the charter and that would be my personal opinion as well but then legault would say well look the reality is the majority of my province supports this uh, legislation it has support across not just my party but many of the parties and it's politically what my people want and Alberta could say the same thing. Look, we understand that in Quebec the pipeline is unpopular, but in my province it has almost you know um, universal pro- uh, popularity or quasi universal popularity. Mm-hmm. And I think these fundamental political issues aren't just going to go away because the premiers get into a room together. You uh, know, it's bigger than that sometimes.
0: Uh, so the hockey sweaters aren't isn't necessarily going to help. <laughs> no, or, or know, great gesture and photo op.
2: Like I mean, like image can help. Photo ops can help. You know, to a certain degree, you know, getting into a room and talking can help. I mean, whether it's collective bargaining between a union and an employer or whether it's
0: yeah, um, yeah,
3: yeah,
2: you know, anything like you know sometimes getting into a room and talking it out can get people to a compromise or get people to a better understanding of one another. But sometimes the issues are fundamental, and it's not that one side is being unreasonable and that the other is being unreasonable. It's just that they have opposing interests mm-hmm. right If they have opposing interests. And at the end of the day, those opposing interests means that cooperation isn't always possible or isn't as possible as people would like. Christo,
0: can we, and you know, obviously, this is directed at the Premier's. Can we agree to disagree? Because it seems if we disagree, and you just explained it perfectly about having two just totally different views on how to how to address a policy or a problem. Uh, it seems that we 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 were not able to to agree to disagree anymore that it's either this or that. Is, can we get back there to, and again, finding this common ground and agree to disagree on fundamental things and still move forward?
2: I mean, well, it depends, right? I mean, to a certain degree, on some of these issues, that might be possible. For instance, on the pipeline, ultimately, you know, while provinces have disagreements on it, um, most, most experts agree that the pipeline is ultimately a federal jurisdiction. So it's sort of, immaterial if the federal government wants the pipeline which it does uh the pipeline Mm. will probably get built unless um the population uh you know protests to a certain degree to make it disincentivized for the for the prime minister or you know court uh you know court challenges block it on a basis largely related to indigenous people and their sovereignty over over the lands affected but you know with other things it's tricky and i mean there's you know whether it's you know the niqab where that's more uniquely provincial. It's, you're, it's affecting provincial workers. It's not really a federal thing. And to a certain degree, you know, there, there is value in trying to agree to disagree. But if you believe that fundamental human rights are being violated in Quebec, and I would read check Section 15 of the Charter, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, uh, is the Equality Section, and I would say that Quebec's Bill 21 is an unabashed violation of the basic human rights of, of Quebecers, specifically... Um, Muslim women and Sikh men are, are two of the bigger examples, then I would say that, that you know, there's agreeing to disagree, but then there's also, you know, why are you why, yeah. would, why would you tolerate the violation of human rights? And as we've known in Ontario, there was cross-party agreement that we do not support what Quebec is doing to some of its minority population. So at some point, there's agreeing to disagree, but then at other points, it's standing up for your fundamental values, mm-hmm. and whether that's opposing bill 21 or opposing a pipeline sometimes provinces just have disagreements uh
0: as you talked about with the uh the photo ops and and so on and so forth it, it they appear to have a unified front that being said there are lots of these issues as you pointed out behind the scenes what do you think those meetings were like i mean this could not have all been a bed of roses
2: no no certainly and i think you know like behind closed doors there were probably significant talks about bill 21 and its effect, um, and whether that was Legault saying that he feels that uh, premiers, uh, whether it's the Ontario where the, the motion was passed in the House of, uh, in the, at Queen's Park, or whether it's, you know, Manitoba sort of um, doing an ad campaign uh, attracting those affected by it, that he's probably not happy. And, of course, Jason Kenney is probably less than enthused both by Legault and by uh, John Horgan in B.C. Uh, for, for, for taking, uh, you know, at, at, the, at least, you know, Uh, pipeline-neutral stances or anti-pipeline stances. And so I think a lot of these discussions happened. There may be disagreements about the expansion of social programs. The vast, vast, vast majority of Canadian citizens, including a majority of Conservatives, uh, support a universal single-payer Pharmacare plan, but the most liberal and Conservative premiers, uh, given that they don't necessarily serve um, the interests of their voters, but rather the interests of the wealthy, don't support... uh, a PharmaCare program, and so you have all of these sorts of interests that are competing. So maybe John Horgan wants PharmaCare, but the other premiers don't, um, even though their voters do. And so how do you negotiate all these things? Those things happen behind closed doors less than they would when, you know, they're all wearing the hockey jerseys for the photo op. Uh,
0: How do you think the Prime Minister's office is viewing these meetings?
2: I mean, I'm I'm not sure if they're any different than usual. I think at this moment... Uh, The importance of these meetings are probably fairly uh, evident. Again, as we've noted, there is a new government. Uh, It's going to start up later this week, basically, Uh, you know, in early December. Uh, We have uh, a new intergovernmental affairs minister, which is Christia Freeland. Uh, And this is a minority government, a strong minority, but still a minority. So all of these pressures exist. You add to that, you know, whether it's Wexit, whether you believe Wexit is is real or, or a sort of media manufacturing, but there's certainly... Uh, alienation in the West, all of these things make these particular meetings very important. And I think that relative to, say, a premier's meeting that happened when Trudeau first came to power, there's a lot more at stake right now for the federal government. And so I think what they're hoping for is that, you know, that they can find some room to cooperate here on various issues. And it might not be that they find commonalities on a broad front but that they can maybe find a piecemeal where on a couple issues they can find commonalities with people like Ford and Kenny, and on a couple others they can find commonalities with Legault and Horgan and see if they can work from there.
0: I can't let you go, Christo, without asking your thoughts on what's happening in London, obviously with NATO and uh, NATO countries meeting, and we understand that the uh, President and the Prime Minister are going to touch base uh, uh, today as well. Uh, What will come out of this? What do you think will be the headline come two days from now?
2: I'm not sure. I think, you know, a lot of this is going to be fairly routine. There might be discussions about, you know, uh, Russia and things of that sort. Um, uh, you know, there's going to be discussions about climate because even though, you know, NATO isn't strictly a a climate change organization, I think that there's a growing realization that, uh, if you're talking about security forces and, and the security of a country or a series of countries, that climate change is going to play a role. In all of this, there's going to be side discussions about internal U.S. politics because, of course, one of the, the leaders of a NATO country is currently uh, facing an impeachment trial. And so I think a lot of these discussions are going to be vital. But other than that, I don't know if it's going to be you know anything exceptional uh, relative to, uh, to previous NATO meetings.
0: Christo Abeliz has been with us. University of Toronto, uh, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history. Christo, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, NATO summit is on now. Uh, Trudeau and Trump meeting today as well, uh, trying to put the uh, final bow on NAFTA as well. Uh, We're assuming the president also going to start uh, calling out people again in regard to our countries again in regard to making sure they are. Uh, contributing what they need to, or should be contributing to NATO. To talk more about all of this, Dave Perry is with us, Vice President and Senior Analyst at the Global Affairs in, uh, the, sorry, the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and is on the line now. Dave, thanks for the time, much appreciated. He's gone. He's oh oh, we just lost him. All right, uh, we'll try to get him back. Uh, You know, it's been fascinating because um, um, many have said that in in a lot of these scenarios, whether it's a summit, whether it's a... a sort of uh, meeting that we have going on here this week in in London and such, Uh, Donald Trump will often fly in and kind of uh, hijack the agenda, uh, take the agenda in the direction that he wants, uh, get the statement that he wants to uh, get out into the media, and then kind of slips away uh, before uh, everyone else does. Uh, It'll be fascinating to see if the same sort of thing happens this time out. Donald Trump uh, obviously trying to get other countries that are part of NATO to step up, and contribute supposed to uh, contribute two percent of the gross national product to uh, NATO in order to keep it functioning and this is uh, an ongoing issue do you want to go ahead and and hit that this is an ongoing issue uh, with NATO let's bring in Dave Perry vice president senior analyst at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and is with us now Dave thanks for the time much appreciated Hi. thanks. Good to join you. What will be the agenda heading into this meeting? What will we be talking about when it's all over, do you think?
3: Uh, I think that unless there's a different message delivered in private, uh, that part of the the takeaway is going to be that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau dodged a bullet uh, in his interaction with uh, the American president. How was that? Um, Specifically, well, because uh, he was called out for being only somewhat delinquent uh, when it came to defense spending and not... Um, fully delinquent, like some of the other members of the Alliance are.
0: Is that what this is for Donald Trump, a time to go in and uh, and point out or call out, as some have said, shake them down for their share of, of NATO?
3: Uh, that seems to be in part his uh, his M.O., um, although I think actually to um, either his credit or, or our good fortune, he's been doing it in a more diplomatic way than he has in the past. So uh, compared to what uh, the president has done at past NATO summits, uh, he's actually using a little bit of the, uh, the a gentler touch this time, um, whereas he's been extraordinarily pointed in the past and, and extremely undiplomatically so.
0: Uh, you have pointed out that uh, the obvious, that, and we were talking about this earlier, that uh, a lot of the times he will go into these meetings and, and such or summits, whatever they are, and completely change the narrative. Does he have a valid point this time?
3: He does, and he's had a valid point all along, and it's not an original point. Um, previous presidents have raised exactly the same issue. They've just done so uh, in far more diplomatic and, and statesmanlike language. Um, The issues that Trump is pointing to in terms of allies not living up to the spending that they agreed to is is entirely, uh, completely valid. Um, Many allies in Canada is in the the worst of the quadrants because we don't hit either the 2% target or the less well understood um, but equally important 20% of what we do spend going to equipment recapitalization targets. So these are completely valid uh, measures um, that all the allies, including Canada, signed up to. They're just incomplete ones. And the way that the president has been bringing them up uh, has been particularly different than the way these have been dealt with in the past, because uh, President Obama, as an example, um, raised the issue, but did so in a a far more diplomatic uh, way.
0: Uh, Did we get did Donald Trump get results this time because of his tactics in the past or is it just time? Why is this? Why is NATO listening now and why?
3: So it's tough to tell how much of it's directly attributable to Trump, but certainly since he uh, was elected and started very pointedly calling out allies, um, spending has gone up uh, by uh, tens of tens of billions of dollars across the alliance, including in Canada. Uh, so, you know, it's always difficult to attribute any specific cause. Uh, but he has been the president of the United States while the other allies um, have actually ponied up and started to spend more.
0: Uh, how is Donald Trump reacting to this?
3: Uh, I think uh, in, in difficult fashion, he's claiming credit for it, uh, which, you know, I, I think that there's a, a solid argument that uh, he deserves some of the credit for it. You know, some of the, some of this is also... The circumstances for the alliance have changed. Uh, Russia has become far more pointedly problematic, uh, I think, from most of the uh, allies' standpoint. So th- there's certainly good reasons for us to be, all of us uh, as allies, to be doing this uh, on our own uh, for good reasons strategically. But uh, I think that there's been a, a significant measure to which the U.S. president can claim credit for achieving what his some of his predecessors didn't, which is to have uh, several allies, Canada included, Start picking up a greater share of the defense burden.
0: Uh, we've certainly seen since the uh, since Donald Trump took president or became president that um, he has questioned our allies while it seems to be supportive of traditional enemies. Uh, is that the tone this time? Is, it, is does it, There seem to be more support for the allies from Donald Trump. I saw that he wasn't upset with uh, what the French president had said, but as you had mentioned, uh, that could have come from him in the past.
3: Haven't seen uh, as much of his, uh, that dynamic that you just described. It hasn't been as obvious as it has been in previous summits. So certainly President Macron, uh, he singled out. um, But I've just been at a session for most of the day where President Trump isn't alone in pointing out that the French president's remarks, however accurate, are extremely unhelpful in some respects in terms of uh, creating any sense of solidarity in the alliance or any, uh, um, you know, sending any kind of clear message to the Russians or or other potential adversaries, that the alliance is uh, cohesive and unified. What President Macron said, I think uh, what President Trump, um, some of his remarks, uh, other people may not have called them nasty, uh, but they certainly took issue with them. So in him singling out uh, the French president, uh, I don't think in this instance that those would be viewed as the same kind of negative towards some of his allies that some of his previous marks and and past engagements have been, because a lot of people agree with him on this. Any sense that
0: there is less divisiveness and and more of a united front here than than the tone in the past?
3: I don't think I'll go that far, because there's uh, a number of different issues beyond uh, the American president um, with the the French stance, uh, with what Turkey's doing. Certainly a number of different uh, problems to solve for NATO as a whole. As the organization coming together and, and c- celebrating its 70th anniversary. Um, not all of them are, are unique, um, and there have been different uh, points of tension, certainly in the past. Uh, but it's not uh, a case of everybody uh, singing from the same song sheet in harmony.
0: Uh, does nato have to prove its relevance in uh, you know at 70 is this a time to reestablish to to redirect refocus
3: i don't know about reestablishing um relevance because i think the organization is uh, extremely relevant i think it's more of a question of uh, adapting uh, and evolving to um take on some of the uh, changes in the strategic environment which are going to affect the alliance so the alliance um, by its very name has been focused on the North Atlantic area. Uh, I think there's increasing conversation about how it reacts to the emergence of China as a great power and a great power competitor and how an alliance has been focused on Europe and the North Atlantic. Um, what role, if there is one, and I think several allies would like it to have one, it can play in promoting security on behalf of the NATO alliance, but more broadly in the world than just the North Atlantic and Europe. Considering
0: how the Western view of China seems to be changing somewhat from what it was, say, a couple of decades ago and what is happening in Hong Kong and such, how much is China uh, a topic of these discussions?
3: I think it's increasingly uh, on the agenda. And again, that's a significant shift for an organization that's been focused really on, on European and, and Atlantic uh, security. Um Certainly a lot of overlap of the issues that you were just describing about Laleh and 5G. Um, that's a, an issue for all of the alliance to consider. Um, not quite as pointedly as it is uh, for Canada, because the rest of NATO enjoys, um, I guess, consider it to be a second-tier status with the United States in terms of some of its defense and security relationships compared to the Five Eyes network of which Canada is a part. But the 5G issue is definitely one that the Americans are also... Uh, pushing the NATO alliance uh, to get its heads around and be cautious about uh, inserting that Chinese technology into different national systems.
0: Is there the same buzz around five G and the concerns uh, in the rest of the world as there is here? Uh, are, are they as concerned about China being the backbone for this system?
3: I, I don't think to the same extent, um, and that's I think in part one because they don't have the uh, the rest of the other allies don't have the same imperative with. Uh, our, you know, dual uh, hostage uh, scenario, If you depending on how you view um, that amongst the situation. So that, that dynamic's not the same. And I think it's a little bit of a less pressing concern, simply, simply because the wider group of NATO allies, other than the United Kingdom, aren't inside the innermost circle and the innermost tent of the United States Five Eyes relationship. And that lessens the imperative slightly.
0: Uh, Obviously, we know what's happening domestically back uh, in the U.S. uh, for the president. And, you know, a lot of domestic uh, issues uh, tend to they try to keep them out of these sorts of things. That being said, uh, in regard to uh, the president's uh, phone call with the Ukraine president and allegedly withholding military aid, uh, in order to uh, to help them protect themselves against Russia. How is all of that playing out? How does Donald Trump walk that fine line?
3: I don't know that he's someone that actually tries to walk a fine line. Um, I think the, the burden on that actually falls more on the professional staff and the bureaucracies of the State Department, uh, U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, they're the ones that have to, uh, to manage that issue because the president himself um, doesn't really seem to, to care much about Walk any particular fine line. But I think it's certainly and those issues, um, both the impeachment itself, although I think um, likely less specifically about those proceedings than it is the, the actual issue at hand about whether or not uh, the president is acting in a way um, that people view as being, um, you know, at, at least advancing at a minimum uh, some Russian interests and uh, working at cross purposes uh, in terms of the withholding of aid on, on condition of uh, the Ukrainians doing his bidding effectively. The uh, Ukraine is on a list of countries to at one point uh, become a, a NATO ally. And so there's strong support in the alliance, uh, varying degrees to, to promote and help the Ukrainian uh, defense and security position. Uh, so there's, I think, a, a very high degree of awareness about what uh, the president um, has been done and has done in the past with both Russia and Ukraine. And there's a lot of attention being paid to uh, the proceedings playing out and seeing exactly what it is uh, that the president did or didn't do
0: uh in the past uh, especially at the beginning of his tenure lots of chatter about donald trump's relationship or he and his relationship with vladimir putin and russia and supposed uh, supposed sympathy i guess towards uh, towards russia uh, has that tone changed at all where is that this this nato summit
3: i don't think it's as overt uh, but certainly some of the testimony that you saw um, as part of those impeachment hearings from some of the national security experts uh, were pointing out uh, that for whatever reason he has done it, um, he is in fact advancing um, on issues like the fact that the Ukrainians may have had a separate server involved in the Clinton investigation, uh, that he is in fact advancing narratives that have been put forward by uh, the Russians as part of a disinformation campaign. Uh, And again, that's something that I think most folks uh, that are gathering in London are highly attuned to The fact that, you know, for whatever reason it's happening, uh, some of the things that the American president uh, is doing are advancing some of the objectives that President Putin shares.
0: Would he be called out on that at these meetings?
3: I think uh, calling out this particular president uh, is a tricky proposition, uh, no matter who you are. Um, Does not uh, exude an aura of someone that takes well to confrontation, whether or not in public or private, uh, as our prime minister Found out after the G7 summit in uh, Charlevoix.
0: That being said, for Justin Trudeau, what's his agenda here? Has his tone changed at these summits?
3: No, his tone uh, didn't change much in terms of uh, speaking about Canada's position when it comes to defence spending or or, or burden sharing. Um, I heard his remarks alongside the the Dutch Prime Minister and thought that he actually gave quite a a well delivered and uh, well-said uh, defense of the alliance, um, something that I, I think he has, has a habit of uh, coming to things like this outside of Canada and giving a, a far more pointed message that's uh, well-delivered and well-received uh, in a way that I wish he would do uh, more often uh, back in Canada.
0: Has perception of him changed in any way of uh, on the world stage post-election?
3: I have not uh, gotten that sense uh, today. Uh, his, his remarks, um, as I said, were quite well received. And some of the folks in the audience uh, next to me, could hear them chatting to each other um, saying, you know, they could, they could see why he uh, was reelected because uh, his speech was quite polished. And he uh, comes aqua- across, I think, um, quite effectively in situations like this. All right.
0: So are you c- expecting to come up the other end of this with uh, relatively calm waters?
3: Uh, I think with uh, President Trump, you never know until it's all over, uh, and there's still a full day of meetings uh, tomorrow, and presumably there was a, a private discussion between the Prime Minister and the President, in addition to the one uh, that was held before the cameras, uh, so I think we need to stay tuned and wait.
0: Uh, any any chance there'll be any revelation regarding NAFTA during those meetings?
3: Uh, I doubt it. Um, uh, other than uh, the comments that uh, he made, I, I think uh, the basic sense is that the Americans are working uh, to get the deal over the finish line in Congress, um, but uh, ultimately, you know, that, that's going to be up to the U.S. Congress to get passed. So the president can only do so much and give an indication of how he thinks that's shaping up. But ultimately, it's the other, uh, it's the legislative body in the United States that's ultimately going to decide its fate.
0: Dave Perry has been with us, Vice President and Senior Analyst at Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Dave, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.